Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Black Star, Marcus Garvey. To be imprisoned is, at least in design, a humbling experience, but there are, of course, some people whom it is well-nigh impossible to humble. In February of 1925, Marcus Garvey, arguably the most popular black leader in the world at the time, was brought to the Atlanta Penitentiary after having been convicted of mail fraud, a federal crime in the United States. His first night there, he composed an open letter to his followers that included the following lines. If I die in Atlanta, my work shall then only begin, but I shall live in the physical or spiritual to see the day of Africa's glory. When I am dead, wrap the mantle of the red, black, and green around me, for in the new life I shall rise with God's grace and blessing to lead the millions up the heights of triumph with the colors that you well know. Look for me in the whirlwind or the storm. Look for me all around you, for with God's grace, I shall come and bring with me countless millions of black slaves who have died in America and the West Indies and the millions in Africa to aid you in the fight for liberty, freedom, and life. The messianic language here makes it obvious how utterly unhumbled Garvey was, even at this apparently low moment in his life. This is not, however, a case of someone completely deluded about his own importance. For there were, in fact, followers of Garvey throughout North America and the Caribbean, and also in Africa and Europe, who fervently believed, like he did, that he was the greatest leader of his people. His organization, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, is unmatched by any other that came before or after it in its reach, its ability to unify large numbers of black people across the black world. A notable example of his lasting influence is the fact that the UNIA flag that he asked to be wrapped in, the one that is red, black, and green, has become the most widely accepted pan-African flag, so much so that we naturally signified the scope of this podcast, the fact that it spans the African continent and the diaspora, by using those colors in the podcast logo. Though we have borrowed that symbolism, we will not be casting only a positive light on Garvey. It's impossible to deliver a full account of Garvey's movement and legacy without explaining why, for many, both in his time and still today, he was no hero but rather a villain of black history. W.E.B. Du Bois famously feuded with Garvey, a conflict which took on a harshness never seen in the earlier conflict between Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. Du Bois once wrote, for example, that Garvey was either a lunatic or a traitor, and then strongly implied that the truth is, he was both. In recounting his life and activities, we'll let you decide for yourself how to see Garvey, but we do want to insist that anyone interested in the history of philosophy should take him seriously. His enemy, Du Bois, has increasingly been recognized as one of the 20th century's great philosophical minds, whereas Garvey is seldom mentioned in discussions of philosophy, even though his thought has always been most widely available to the reading public through a collection entitled The Philosophy and Opinions of Marcus Garvey. Taking Garvey seriously certainly does not mean treating him as Du Bois' equal with regard to subtlety, depth, and breadth. It doesn't even mean treating his activity as a thinker as being equal in importance to his stature as the organizer of a movement, although separating those two things is not so easy to do. 
The point is to recognize how inescapably central he was to the development of Africana philosophical thought in the 20th century. He more or less reorganized the world of black ideas to revolve around himself, whether through influence or antagonism. Garvey was born on August 17, 1887, in St. Anne's Bay, a small town in Jamaica. You might remember Du Bois's story of being rebuffed by a newcomer in his class during a game of exchanging visiting cards. Garvey, too, wrote of being introduced to racial consciousness through a painful interaction with a white girl, in his case, a next-door neighbor with whom he grew up playing. Once they reached the age of 14, things changed. Her parents decided to draw the color line, as he put it, sending her to Scotland and forbidding her to contact him. It was then, wrote Garvey, that I found for the first time that there was some difference in humanity, and that there were different races, each having its own separate and distinct social life. Garvey might have responded by working to break down racial barriers. Instead, he tells us, After my first lesson in race distinction, I never thought of playing with white girls anymore, even if they might be next-door neighbors. Thus began what would over the years become an outspoken dedication to the principle of staying with your own kind. As a young man, Garvey became a printer's apprentice in Kingston, the capital of Jamaica. He rose to a position managing others but then got an early taste of political leadership when he joined and played a leading role in a print workers' strike. The failure of this strike became an example for Garvey of the kind of politics he rejected. He also got involved in the National Club, Jamaica's first nationalist political organization, along with W.A. Domingo, who we first introduced in the episode on the early rise of African-American socialism. Domingo later claimed to have been the one to introduce Garvey to Edward Blyden's Christianity, Islam, and the Negro Race. Yet again, we see how influential Blyden was in this period. While figures like J.E. Casely Hayford represent his legacy in West African thought, there is perhaps no better example of his influence on those in the Americas than Garvey. We now follow Garvey from Jamaica to Costa Rica, where the United Fruit Company employed many from the British West Indies. While working as a timekeeper for the company, he also engaged in journalism. Having already briefly put out a newspaper called Garvey's Watchman in Jamaica, he put out a bilingual newspaper in Costa Rica called The Nation or La Nación, using it to criticize injustice and exploitation. Going beyond Costa Rica, Garvey traveled extensively throughout Central America and spent time especially in Panama, where he also engaged in journalistic activism. Then, after returning to Jamaica, he left again to go to England, where he managed to attend some evening classes in law at Birkbeck College and continue his path into journalism by assisting with Duzay Muhammad Ali with his African Times and Orient Review. Ali was an Egyptian with Sudanese heritage and involved in such undertakings as the Universal Races Congress in 1911, the year before Garvey arrived. It was in the African Times and Orient Review that Garvey published his first widely circulated piece of writing, called The British West Indies in the Mirror of Civilization. It tells a history of the Caribbean, highlighting the violence and dehumanization that has been part of that history, and criticizing racism in the current running of the civil service in Jamaica. A future-oriented final paragraph points the way toward Garvey's later ambitions. Having just predicted that the parochial feelings that have gotten in the way of attempts to federate the West Indies thus far will eventually give way to unity, he writes, As one who knows the people well, 
I make no apology for prophesying that there will soon be a turning point in the history of the West Indies, and that the people who inhabit that portion of the Western Hemisphere will be the instruments of uniting a scattered race, who, before the close of many centuries, will found an empire on which the sun shall shine as ceaselessly as it shines on the empire of the North today. The idea of black West Indians uniting and then acting as the binding force bringing together the black race as a whole, along with the now rather disturbing implication that this will be a global empire, somehow comparable to the British Empire, herald Garvey's special contributions even before the founding of the UNIA. Garvey founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association in Jamaica in July of 1914, days after returning home from England. In an autobiographical essay that he wrote years later, called The Negro's Greatest Enemy, he gives the impression that one of the biggest influences in its creation was none other than Booker T. Washington. I read Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington, and then my doom, if I may so call it, of being a race leader dawned upon me in London after I had traveled through almost half of Europe. I asked, where is the black man's government? Where is his king and his kingdom? Where is his president, his country, and his ambassador, his army, his navy, his men of big affairs? I could not find them, and then I declared, I will help to make them. It's helpful of Garvey to be so explicit about taking inspiration from reading Washington, if only thinkers were always so clear about their influences. But how are we to understand that influence? It is not as if the questions he asks here can be found in Up From Slavery, Washington wanted to build a skilled black workforce, not a black army or navy. In part, Garvey is simply recognizing Washington as a successful leader in action and thus a potential role model for Garvey himself. Then too, Washington was not just any leader, but one who promoted self-reliance. Garvey wants black people to provide themselves with the authoritative structures that he sees as crucial to a functioning and flourishing modern society. Even if these are not structures that Washington himself sought to attain, Washington's promotion of self-reliant industry may have inspired Garvey to dream of what black people can do for themselves. Finally, whatever else we might say about the passage, there is also the straightforward historical point that, once he got the UNIA going, Garvey aimed to create an industrial farm that could serve as a vocational college, on the model of Washington's Tuskegee. He did not accomplish that goal. The main activities of the UNIA in its early existence included musical, literary, and debating events. But its stated aims were, from the beginning, much grander. To establish a brotherhood among the black race, to promote a spirit of race pride, to reclaim the fallen, and to assist in civilizing the backward tribes of Africa. In seeking to achieve these goals through his new organization, Garvey ran up against the problem that Jamaican elites were not interested in acknowledging their blackness. Men and women as black as I, and even more so, had believed themselves white under the West Indian order of society. I was simply an impossible man, to use openly the term Negro. Yet everyone, beneath his breath, was calling the black man a Negro. These difficulties helped push Garvey to see what he could do with the organization in the United States. He was not in time to meet his hero at Tuskegee, Washington died in November of 1915, about four months before Garvey arrived. He began to establish himself in several ways. Garvey impressed listeners at Speaker's Corner in Harlem, 
where people like Hubert Harrison made a name for themselves, standing on soapboxes and capturing the crowd. Harrison lent a helping hand by having Garvey speak before him at indoor events, like the meetings of his organization, the Liberty League. Then, in July of 1917, the United States was rocked by a race riot in East St. Louis. Around 40 African Americans were killed, and thousands were left homeless after the burning of buildings. Garvey delivered a speech entitled The Conspiracy of the East St. Louis Riots that captured the evil of the moment. Characteristically, he suggested that black disunity allowed such mistreatment to proceed. This gained Garvey further attention, especially beyond New York. Even before the speech about East St. Louis, Garvey had founded the New York branch of the UNIA. By the next year, 1918, membership grew rapidly. That year, Garvey incorporated the African Communities League as the trading arm of the organization, began to include a life insurance policy providing death benefits to members, and launched the organization's official newspaper, The Negro World. 1919 was equally momentous. This was, among other things, the year that Garvey announced the Black Star Line, his plan for a fleet of ships that would facilitate travel to and trade with Africa. It is also the year that he married Amy Ashwood, who had helped him with the organization from the very beginning in Jamaica. Truth being stranger than fiction, the maid of honor at the wedding was Amy Jakes, friend to Amy Ashwood and personal secretary to Garvey, and she would later become the second Mrs. Garvey named Amy. We are going to consider the intellectual impact of these two remarkable women in a separate episode, so we won't say more about them here. But it is worth highlighting a third woman at the forefront of the movement who was never Garvey's wife. Henrietta Vinton Davis was an entertainer who took Garvey's vision seriously and became one of his most trusted associates. In August of 1920, the power of the movement was demonstrated in grand style when the UNIA held its first international convention at Madison Square Garden. A parade down 7th Avenue featured marching bands, choirs, and UNIA divisions with state or country banners. One of the more controversial aspects of the convention was the election of the Provisional President of Africa, who turned out to be, you'll never guess, Garvey himself. Then again, he arguably did not take the fanciest position of all. Another delegate, Gabriel Johnson, who was at that moment the mayor of Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, was elected potentate leader of the Negro peoples of the world. We'd like to claim some commonality with the UNI here. While this podcast hasn't had any parades down 7th Avenue, at least not yet, it does share Garvey's penchant for fanciful titles. By this time, Garvey had already done much to reconfigure black intellectual life. He had attracted and put to use some of the greatest minds of the time, including a number of figures whom we have previously discussed. William Ferris first encountered Garvey's thought in the form of that 1913 article, The British West Indies in the Mirror of Civilization, and recognized a voice worth listening to, as he wrote appreciatively of the piece in the next issue of the African Times and Orient Review. Ferris eventually served in editorial roles for the Negro world during the time in which the Garveyite movement was at its height. Others who performed editorial roles for the newspaper included W.A. Domingo, Hubert Harrison, John Bruce, and, now nearing the end of his days, T. Thomas Fortune. Bruce is an interesting case, as he was initially open-minded about helping Garvey, but was swayed against him after seeking the opinion of Garvey's former employer in England, Duzay Muhammad Ali. The response was a negative one, counseling suspicion of Garvey's motives. 
Bruce duly went on to criticize Garvey in print, and repeatedly. But then one night at Speaker's Corner, something clicked. I stood at a corner of Lenox Avenue and 135th Street when Garvey, standing on an especially built platform, unfolded in part the plan of his organization, which was to draw all Negroes throughout the world together, to make one big brotherhood of the black race for its common good, for mutual protection, for commercial and industrial development, and for fostering of business purposes. This sounded not only good to me, but practical. Seeing in Garvey a leader who could possibly bring to fruition his greatest ideals, Bruce became a passionate defender of Garvey and worked for the advancement of the UNIA until his death in 1924. As we've mentioned in an earlier episode, Hubert Harrison had a complicated relationship with Garvey as he helped bring him to the public's attention, found himself eclipsed by Garvey's popularity, and ended up relying on work he did for Garvey, all while questioning many of Garvey's moves. In his diary, he referred to the excesses of the convention as the most colossal joke in Negrodom. Less private and more philosophically subtle would be his thoughts on the convention's Declaration of Rights of the Negro Peoples of the World. The 54 items in the document include everything from condemnations of colonial exploitation to the demand that the word Negro be spelled with a capital N. Harrison refused to sign because he felt the document was not radical enough while Ferris refused to sign because he felt that in some places it went too far. To speak of Harrison's radicalism leads naturally, however, to the general topic of Garvey's antagonistic relationship with socialists. Domingo was a friend from back home, as you'll recall, and also the first person to help Garvey when he arrived in New York. Domingo was also, however, a socialist. Garvey found in 1919 that this was bringing undesirable negative attention to the Negro world under Domingo's editorship, and that the newspaper was not fulfilling its task of sharing Garvey's vision. Garvey put Domingo on trial before a nine-person committee, leading to Domingo's resignation and an irreparable break between the two. Domingo joined the African Blood Brotherhood, a semi-secret organization created by Cyril Briggs and devoted to the cause of black liberation. Given the commitments of Briggs and other members, it also served as a black auxiliary of the Communist Party. While Briggs was optimistic at first about working together with Garvey, this possibility was clearly dashed at the second UNIA convention, where communism was denounced as a white man's creation to solve his own political and economic problems, and Briggs was thus denounced as the paid servant of certain destructive white elements which aimed at exploiting Negroes for their own subservient ends. The enmity between Briggs and Garvey was bitter, especially because Garvey took advantage of Briggs's lightness in color of skin to treat him as a white man masquerading as black. Briggs's magazine, The Crusader, became a primary vehicle of criticizing Garvey in the following years. Recall, however, that Briggs was from Nevis and Domingo from Jamaica. Other African blood brotherhood leaders included Richard B. Moore from Barbados and Otto Heisvoud from Suriname. This West Indian background made the anti-Garvey sentiments from the African blood brotherhood point of view different in kind from the criticisms coming from other black leaders, including other socialists like A. Philip Randolph and Chandler Owen. There was an element of xenophobia in the criticisms of Garvey coming from sources like Randolph and Owen's magazine, The Messenger. The slogan for these critics was, Garvey must go. In other words, Garvey should be deported. 
against the backdrop of these other antagonisms, let us now consider the legendary conflict between Garvey and Du Bois. Early on, Garvey was interested in gaining the support of the man who, in the wake of Washington's death, stood out as the most prominent black leader in America. He went in person to invite Du Bois to his first public lecture upon arriving in New York, which according to Domingo, writing much later, was an embarrassing failure, in which Garvey fell off the stage. Du Bois did not attend this or any other event to which Garvey invited him. The first time hostility between the two came to the surface, though, was in 1919. Eliezer Cadet, a young Haitian man sent to Paris by the UNIA to intervene in the peace conference proceedings, failed to get a hearing. He blamed this on Du Bois, who had the more successful result there of organizing the first of his Pan-African Congresses. Garvey believed Cadet and proclaimed Du Bois a traitor to his race. It would be far from the last time he traced his troubles to machinations by Du Bois. For example, a fundraising trip of his to the Caribbean in 1921 was intended to last no more than six weeks, but stretched out to four months because of being denied re-entry. This had everything to do with the efforts of J. Edgar Hoover and his Bureau of Investigation, which would later become the FBI, but Garvey was sure that Du Bois played some role. Du Bois, for his part, was deeply annoyed throughout the period of Garvey's rise at having to distinguish his Pan-African Congresses from the Garvey movement as the latter had become synonymous with Pan-Africanism. So what philosophical differences, if any, were there between these two Pan-Africanists? Du Bois accused Garvey of trying to force a form of intra-racial distinction into the American scene where it did not belong, writing, Garvey has sought to import to America and capitalize the antagonism between blacks and mulattoes in the West Indies. This has been the cause of the West Indian failures to gain headway against the whites, yet Garvey imports it into a land where it has never had any substantial footing and where, today of all days, it is absolutely repudiated by every thinking Negro. Du Bois wrote this in one of his editorials about Garvey, but many find his physical description of Garvey in a different editorial distasteful in a telling way. Opening in a narrative form, he spoke of Garvey as a little fat black man, ugly but with intelligent eyes and big head. Garvey latched onto this line, asking, now what does Du Bois mean by ugly? This so-called professor of Harvard and Berlin ought to know by now that the standard of beauty within a race is not arrived at by comparison with another. Garvey charged Du Bois with revealing, through his very language, a belief that to be dark-skinned is to be ugly, indicative of an assimilationist desire that Garvey took to be characteristic of the NAACP as a whole. Garvey came from a social context where there was a clear distinction between a light-skinned elite and dark-skinned masses. Did this cause him to misjudge the American context as Du Bois charged? Or did it, to the contrary, help him to perceive a tension amongst African Americans that Du Bois did not wish to see? Du Bois also sought to expose Garvey as a bad businessman, taking advantage of black people and leaving them worse off. The Black Star Line had become the centerpiece of UNIA activities, and black people everywhere were encouraged to buy company stock. The organization struggled, though, buying only a few ships, which it had difficulty keeping in working condition. Hoover's vendetta against Garvey came to fruition when it was noticed that a brochure for the Black Star Line included a picture of a ship not yet owned by the company. Interestingly, the ship, though called the Orion, was shown in the picture as the SS Phyllis Wheatley, 
This was the mail fraud for which Garvey was arrested in January of 1922. He was let out on bail and remained very active while awaiting trial, so active that he had the time to make a choice that not only enraged Du Bois and his other enemies, but was found to be foolhardy and abhorrent even by many of his friends. In Georgia, while touring the country, he had a meeting with Edward Young Clark, acting imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. There seemed to be common ground between Garvey and the Klan. Both accepted that the United States was the white man's country, which is why Garvey wanted to establish and build up Africa as the black man's center of power. Du Bois had condemned Washington's accommodationism in the past. Now he condemned with equal passion Garvey's despair of achieving full rights and equality in America. Garvey's trial in 1923 resulted in his conviction. He was again released on bail, but eventually, after his appeal failed, he was sent to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta. Apparently, one of his greatest sources of comfort while there was the meditations of a fellow Marcus, namely the Roman Stoic and Emperor Marcus Aurelius. In 1927, the Attorney General John Sargent advised then-President Calvin Coolidge that Garvey's imprisonment, which had inspired much protest and petition, did not necessarily serve the interests of justice. Notwithstanding the fact that the prosecution was designed for the protection of colored people, whom it was charged Garvey had been defrauding, none of these people apparently believe that they have been defrauded and manifestly retain their entire confidence in Garvey. President Coolidge commuted Garvey's sentence, but only on the condition of Garvey's immediate deportation. Thus, in December of 1927, a large crowd assembled at the dock in New Orleans to say goodbye to their beloved leader. If Garvey's deportation brought to a final end the glory days of the UNIA, he remained an actor in black politics for a while yet. Back in Jamaica, he was elected as a city councillor in Kingston and founded the island's first political party, the People's Political Party. In 1935, he left Jamaica for England, where he lived the remainder of his life. He went back to his roots by spending time at the Speaker's Corner in London's Hyde Park. In this capacity, he tangled at times with younger activists like George Padmore and C.L.R. James, true Trinidadians we have met in previous episodes. They clashed, for example, during the crisis of the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. Garvey had at first been supportive of Emperor Haile Selassie, but he puzzled many by changing his mind and charging the emperor with cowardice. Garvey also went on a tour of Canada and the Caribbean in 1937, and while in Trinidad, he was unsupportive of a strike by oilfield workers, thus further aggravating Padmore and James. But the trip to Canada also gives us an insight into how and why Garvey remained relevant and influential. Never mind inspiring our podcast logo, he seems to have preempted our entire project. While in Toronto, he conducted lessons in a new course he developed called the School of African Philosophy. Then, having left Chike's hometown of Toronto, he came to Chike's current home, Nova Scotia. There, in the town of Sydney on the island of Cape Breton, he delivered a speech that included the line, We are going to emancipate ourselves from mental slavery because whilst others might free the body, none but ourselves can free the mind. That might sound familiar. Decades later, the great Bob Marley drew on this part of the speech when composing the lyrics to his classic, Redemption Song. In May of 1940, Garvey suffered a stroke, and it was wildly misreported that he had died. Like Mark Twain before him, he could enjoy the fact that the reports of his death were greatly exaggerated. 
and he had the mixed pleasure of being able to read eulogies and commentaries, both praising and criticizing him. He was apparently still looking through the clippings when he suffered a second stroke that he did not survive. The Chicago Defender, whose pioneering editor Robert Abbott had been a vocal critic of Garvey in the 1920s, had this to say at the time of his death, Endowed with a dynamic personality, with unmatched oratorical gift, Garvey was easily the most colorful figure to have appeared in America since Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington. The paper went on to quote historian Albert Bushnell Hart, who was none other than Du Bois's dissertation advisor. Hart commented, That is the difference between success and failure. Had Garvey succeeded in his undertakings, he would have been uncontestably the greatest figure of the 20th century. Having failed, he is considered a fool. Two contemporaries who did not consider Garvey a failure or a fool, well, at least not all the time, were his aforementioned wives, Amy Ashwood Garvey and Amy Jakes Garvey. Keeping with a running theme of this episode, the two nourished an abiding rivalry with one another, which, no less than the conflict between Du Bois and Garvey, involved some fairly hostile rhetoric. This persisted for many years after Garvey's death. The two agreed that Garvey's legacy was worth celebrating and preserving, they just disagreed as to which of them was the proper spokeswoman for his movement once he was gone. Along with their passion for that movement, this provided both of them with plenty of motivation to establish themselves as activists and to bring feminist concerns into the cause of pan-Africanism. So join us next time as we meet Amy Garvey and Amy Garvey, or maybe vice versa, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 